You are listening to the Catholic Exchange Podcast. Good afternoon and welcome to the Catholic Exchange Podcast. It's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Aaron Kiriati. You might know him from our Catholic Exchange articles, as well as his book, The Catholic Guide to Depression, as well as the introduction to True and False Possession, also here at Sophia Institute Press. Dr. Kiriati is he's currently a professor of psychiatry and the director of, of the program in medical ethics at the University of California, Irvine School of Medicine. He serves as chairman of the Clinical Ethics Committee at UCI Medical Center. He's a graduate of Notre Dame and also got his MD from Georgetown University. He has a lot of knowledge to talk about. We'll talk about his book, The Catholic Guide to Depression, as well as the assisted suicide legislation that just died in California and what that means for the future. So, Dr. Curiarty, welcome to the Catholic Exchange Podcast. It's good to have you here today. Thank you, Michael. It's great to be here. So first, to start us out, I understand that there was some process going on, progress really, going on in California with assisted suicide. Can you tell us a little bit about what was going on with that? Sure. Well, I'm pleased to report that here in California, Senate Bill 128, which would have legalized physician-assisted suicide in the state of California, after it passed the state Senate, it died in the Assembly Health Committee this week. Mm -hmm. The authors of the bill looking at the composition of that committee and trying to lobby the members of that committee, it became clear to them that there was bipartisan opposition in that committee to legalizing physician-assisted suicide, uh, both from the Republicans, who we sort of expect on this issue, but also from many of the Democrats on the committee, especially those who represented districts with hev heavily represented Latino populations, listening to the concerns of those in California from the Latino community, the African-American communities, Listening to the concerns of folks that are uninsured or underinsured, it became clear, I think, to the legislators in California that this kind of legislation opens the door to many harmful practices that will place mm -hmm. vulnerable patients at risk, that there were inadequate protections for dealing with individuals who may, may be motivated to take their own lives by things like depression and anxiety. We know that 80 to 90 percent of attempts to take one's own life or even thinking about wanting to die is motivated by a potentially treatable mental condition like depression mm -hmm. or anxiety. And yet, if you look to Oregon and the law in California was based right. on the law that was passed earlier in Oregon, if you look at the folks who have died by assisted suicide in Oregon, astonishingly, only 5% of them were ever referred by the prescribing physician who gave them the deadly drug, were ever referred for psychiatric consultation or psychological evaluation to rule out these most common causes of suicidal thinking. And based on what we know about suicide risk factors, this is really a form of medical negligence. It's a form of patient abandonment. So it doesn't require religious principles or religious arguments to recognize the ways in which assisted suicide laws like this are harmful and place vulnerable individuals at risk. And so we, we saw folks from across the religious and ideological and political spectrum once they began unpacking this legislation, they began seeing that there are serious problems with it. Oftentimes, uh, efforts to legalize assisted suicide ride in on a wave of enthusiasm. In this case, it was, it was the public attention surrounding the case of a young woman named Brittany Menard, who many mm -hmm. listeners probably saw in People magazine and in the media. This was a woman 
from the Bay Area have moved from California to Oregon to avail herself of their assisted suicide line and ended up dying last November. But of course, we have to look at not just one case or one type of case. We have to look at all the folks that are going to be affected by laws like this. We have to look at the impact that it's going to have on the profession of medicine, the way in which indeed it it turns the foundational principles of medical ethics upside down. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I'm very pleased to report that based on grassroots efforts from Californians to try to educate uh, folks, the general public, and also especially our legislators, uh, these these problems began to surface in recent weeks and, and got to the point where legislation that looked like it had a lot of momentum behind it and that many folks were saying was going to pass easily, in fact, stalled and, and died in committee this week. I, I don't think the issue is going to go away in California. The, Unfortunately, probably not. You know, they have a lot of money at their disposal, and uh, Compassion and Choice is the leading uh, assisted suicide advocacy group out here, uh, formerly known as the Hemlock Society. They've sort of rebranded themselves. Uh, uh, they're, they're prepared to put uh, many millions of dollars next year toward a statewide ballot initiative. So we'll have to continue our efforts to educate the public on the dangers associated with uh, doctor-assisted death and, and really what amounts to death on demand. And, uh, you know, I'm optimistic based on the fact that we were able to stop this legislation that uh, with good effort from people and uh, with efforts to get out there and educate folks, we'll be able to do the same with the future ballot initiative that we may face in California. Very good. Well, as some folks may know, I'm both a native of Oregon and also somebody who suffers from depression. So this has always been a concern on my end and something I've really fought against when I was a voter in Oregon and try to keep out of the light. But the resistance I always meet and what people always wonder is, why does it matter if this is somebody's personal choice? Why should we as an individual or as a Catholic or in your case as a doctor care so much? Well, oh, what do you think of that? Yeah. So this is uh, this is a powerful argument that many people mm-hmm. are buying into this notion of isn't it just a private matter of personal autonomy? You know, it's between me and my physician and it won't affect anyone else. But in fact, we know that these kinds of behaviors do have social consequences. In fact, the social consequences of suicidal behavior have been so well studied by social scientists, there's actually a name for it. It's called the Werther effect. We know that there's a social contagion aspect to these sorts of behaviors and to other health-related behaviors. We know, for example, that uh, suicide rates, overall suicide rates, assisted Mm -hmm. and unassisted, were declining in Oregon in the 1990s. Then assisted suicide was legalized in uh, 97, and in subsequent years, between 2000 and 2010, we saw a sharp and precipitous rise in the overall suicide rates in Oregon, uh, to the point where they, by 2010, they were 35% higher in Oregon than the national average. So these laws have social consequences for many reasons. One of the reasons is simply that the law itself is a teacher. And a law like this communicates to people that under certain circumstances, some lives are not worth living. Under certain circumstances, self-inflicted death is a reasonable course of action or a reasonable option. Now, proponents would like to think that's a message that's only going to be heard by someone with a terminal illness. But the fact is, Mm -hmm. as someone who's evaluated and treated thousands of people, that are, have considered taking their own lives or, or made an attempt on their own lives. I can tell you that this is a message that's going to be heard by all 
vulnerable individuals. And that stands to worsen our current public health crisis of suicide. So I, I think it's naive to think uh, that this autonomy argument has any merit or any any validity. In fact, if you look at the economic realities in medicine, Michael, it becomes clear that people's range of options are not actually going to be expanded. They're going to be narrowed once assisted suicide is legalized. We can look, for example, at the cases from Oregon of Barbara Wagner and the case of Randy Stroop. These were two uh, citizens of Oregon diagnosed with a terminal cancer whose physicians, their, their oncologists, had recommended a course of chemotherapy. Now, the chemotherapy would not have been curative, but in their doctor's judgment, it would have potentially extended their life. In Barbara's case, her oncologist believed it could have given her another few years of life. Mm -hmm. Both of these patients received a letter from their insurance company, the Oregon Health Plan, the publicly administered yes. insurance company, denying them coverage for the chemotherapy that the docs had recommended. In Barbara's case, chemo would have cost three or $4,000 a month. In the same letter, the insurance company said, we will pay for the $50 assisted suicide pill. Right? So as, as soon as this so-called option is introduced, it immediately becomes the cheapest and most expedient way of dealing with complicated and sometimes expensive care that's required at the end of life. And, you know, you could say, you could argue, well, that the insurance company didn't force them to take that option. But obviously there's economic factors and realities at work here that are going to pressure vulnerable individuals, especially those that don't have access to the best insurance or to the best care possible. Um, and so it's, it's simply an illusion that this is, you know, just one small step in already existing palliative care options, or that it's just one more option among many. Uh, in fact, it's going to undermine practice of medicine in terms of caring for patients at the end of life. It's going to undermine suicide prevention efforts. And at the end of the day, I think this whole notion of individual autonomy is going to turn out to be an illusion when it comes to physician-assisted suicide. I see that. And that's a uh, shocking news that an insurance company, the Oregon Health Plan, would propose that. Is that something that is been brought up before. I mean, I, I've never actually heard of that before, to be honest with you. But it makes sense that an insurance company, if they're trying to look at their bottom line, why wouldn't they say, hey, take the cheaper option, no, this th one? Right. So the, these are two cases that did receive some public attention mm -hmm. from the media. I don't think as much attention as they probably deserve. But, it, you know, it's it's no secret, no accident that the, the board of directors of Compassion Choices is stacked with many former insurance company executives that, ha that take a, a sort of crass utilitarian calculus approach to the value of human life. And mm -hmm. in, a, in a healthcare system that's under tremendous pressure to lower costs, that's going to be facing an, an aging population and serious challenges in terms of how to care for that aging population, this is going to be a very attractive option. Uh, to insurance companies, to hospital bureaucrats, to healthcare systems that are under the kind of pressure to lower costs that we know are going to be coming down the pike. And I think it's simply naive to ignore those economic realities. I agree. And I do have to ask, uh, as someone who works in the field of medicine, especially with uh, mental health, do you find that these sort of laws, you mentioned some statistics, but do you think that if physician-assisted suicide is passed in certain states, that this is going to be kind of an encouragement to people who already, you know, for example, mental health is a big issue in my family. Do you think this is already an encouragement and a societal pressure to 
take your life in that case? I, I think it will be because, as I mentioned earlier, the law itself is a teacher. And if the attitude of yes. people around me are changing in terms of, hey, suicide seems reasonable in these circumstances, that's going to have an effect on my own thinking, especially if I'm more vulnerable because I'm in the thick of a depressive episode or I'm struggling with, uh, uh, with some serious problem in my life. So, look, suicide... And or request for assistance in helping me die is a kind of distress signal. It's a sort of canary in the coal mine that indicates that something in my circumstances, medical, psychological, social, or spiritual, is not being attended to properly. Mm-hmm. Right? And what this law does is that it asks physicians to take a very superficial approach to evaluating that kind of presenting symptom rather than doing what doctors are supposed to do, which is drill down to the root cause of the problem, what doctors call the etiology or the origin of the problem. Instead, we just say, oh yeah, well, your life does appear difficult now that you have this terminal illness or, or whatever. And then physicians get in the habit of actually making the judgment that killing you would be of benefit to you, right? And it creates two completely contradictory and incompatible approaches to evaluating and treating patients mm-hmm. that tell us that they want to die. So Robin Williams walks into my office saying that, you know, due to my serious illness, in his case, an addiction could have proved terminal. Uh, my life is no longer worth living anymore. I can't go on anymore and I want to end it. And, and what do I do? Of course, I intervene to try to help get him through that crisis. And everyone recognized that the death of a man like Robin Williams is a great loss and a great tragedy for the world, yes. perhaps a preventable tragedy. But then Brittany Menard walks into my office saying my life has become intolerable or I fear that in the future it will become intolerable because of this illness. Therefore, I want you to help me, uh, you know, give me a drug that, that I can use to take my own life. And in that case, not only do I not intervene to help her, but I actually facilitate her death. I mean, these, these approaches simply cannot coexist together in medicine, something is going to have to give. So basically what this introduces is a totally discriminatory practice into medicine. Mm-hmm. The basis of the, you know, discrimination supposedly is the patient's health status. But, but I think this is hugely problematic when it comes to uh, maintaining our resolve to give the best possible care, including mental health care, to individuals that feel that they can't go on living anymore. Absolutely. And I do have to ask you, brought up Brittany Maynard and also Robin Williams, I notice a huge dichotomy between the two approaches. What do you think is at the bottom of that? Because in one instance, you know, we were mourning, I was mourning. I mean, I loved Robin Williams and it was so sad to hear the news. And with Brittany Maynard, I saw celebration almost. Why do we have these two contradictory thoughts in our heads as a culture? Well, that's that's a that's a very good question, and I think holding those two cases up side by side and trying to sort through why mm-hmm. we had such different reactions is very puzzling. I think part of it certainly came simply from the way the media framed and presented both of the stories. I mean, you CNN called Brittany Menard one of the eleven most influential people of 2014, and and you you had folks sort of fawning all over her and holding her up as a hero. In fact. Mm-hmm. It, in the presentation of the Brittany Menard case, almost every major media outlet violated the World Health Organization's directives on how to report cases of suicide so as to avoid encouraging copycat behavior. Again, this has been so well studied. When, when you have a well-publicized case like this, you, you end up influencing a lot of other vulnerable individuals to behave in the same way. 
And it was, I think, unethical and totally irresponsible to hold her up as an inspiring example, precisely because we should worry about the fact that her example might inspire other individuals who feel that they can't go on anymore, who feel that uh, if they go out in a blaze of glory the way she did, maybe they will receive perhaps the same kind of adulation or attention. So I think I think the reporting around that case framed it in that way because it became very useful to a particular mm-hmm. cause. She became the poster child, the public face uh, this time around of the assisted suicide movement. And the way her story was framed became an emotionally compelling and powerful argument that grabbed people's compassion. And, uh, and yet it seems to me that she was used for that purpose, but yes, you know, powerful forces that had an interest in passing this kind of legislation. And unfortunately, many people in the media simply went along for the ride without stepping back and asking hard questions. At the same time, as I do more media interviews, my impression is that folks are getting a little bit tired of that narrative and the, the Brittany Menard case is growing a bit stale. They still haven't come up with compelling arguments besides citing a single case or a single type of case. But of course, when we're talking about public policy, we have to pull back on the optics and look at everyone who's going to be affected by legislation like this, right? So I debated her husband uh, again this morning on Fox News and a few months ago on, on Fusion. And he, of course, sticks to the story of simply telling what happened to his wife and claiming that, uh, you know, in their judgment, this was a good outcome. But of course, that's not enough. We're talking about public policy. We're talking about legislation that's going to affect all Californians or all folks in the states that are considering similar bills. And when we step back and look at the big picture, we realize that there are serious problems with this law. And the fact that some people believe it may have worked well in one case in no way demonstrates that it's going to work well in every case or even in most cases. So looking to Oregon, we can find plenty of instances of abuse of problems in in terms of the way the law is applied and of individuals who died probably unnecessarily because they were, uh, they were given inadequate medical care and instead offered the deadly drug. I see. And to switch gears a little bit on this subject, I know you've written the, as I mentioned already, you wrote the book, the Catholic guide to depression, a book that I know has been very helpful for me and many, many people who either are caring for someone who's in, a depressive state or somebody who is suffering from a form of depression. Just have to ask, uh, what brought that book about for you to write? Well, I was pleased that Sophia Institute Press reached out to me a few years ago. Uh, John Barger, who was at the, at the time uh, in charge of the publication, was very interested in doing a, a mental health series that integrated the best of modern medicine, the best of modern psychological sciences with insights from the Catholic theological, uh, spiritual, and ascetical tradition. And I thought this was a marvelous idea. I suggested to him that we begin with a book on depression because the problem is so common, so so ubiquitous that it affects so many people. Uh, so he thought that that, that was a good idea. And then when uh, the new publisher, Charlie McKinney, took over, he did a great job of shepherding the book to publication. And I, I have to say, Michael, I've been so pleased with the response from readers Uh, from the book. You know, writing a book is a bit of an act of faith. You sort of put it out there and you don't really know, you know, you see the sales numbers, which are edifying, but you don't really know, you know, who's reading it, what they're getting out of it. Occasionally you'll, you'll hear back from a reader or you'll see a review on Amazon or something like that. That's encouraging. Um, But I have to say, I I was contacted, for example, 
by a woman from Canada a few months back who said that the book literally saved her life, that she was contemplating ending her life and reading the book uh, instilled in her a new sense of hope and purpose and helped actually rekindle her faith. And as a writer, I, I would say if I can impact one reader uh, in that sort of way, then all the blood, sweat and tears that goes into writing a book was, was well worth it. So I'm pleased that the book is out there and, um, and hopefully it's going to continue to help more readers who struggle with depression or family members that want to understand what a loved one is going through and, and how they might be able to support and assist them through the depressive episode. And I do have one question because this is a question I often get and I'm sometimes at a loss to answer it. What's the difference between like how would you describe what depression is and how it's different from say just sadness or mourning? Sure. So depression clearly involves changes in our emotional state and those changes characteristically are sadness although it can manifest as as anger or even a feeling of numbness and emptiness so you do see those emotional changes in depression but under unlike ordinary sadness or the everyday blues depression affects many other other aspects of our physical uh, biological and mental life right so it drains us of physical energy it impairs our sleep, natural sleep-wake cycle. Mm -hmm. People often with depression will struggle with severe insomnia as a characteristic symptom. We see changes in appetite, oftentimes with severe weight loss that can negatively impact a person's physical health. Uh, cognitively, we see with depression that people's ability to concentrate and focus is usually pretty severely impaired. They'll describe things like trying to read a book and having to reread the same paragraph four or five times and not being able to understand what it is or comprehend what it is that they're reading. They'll describe not being able to follow along in a conversation. So it, it can affect our cognitive, our mental functioning in pretty profound ways as well. So depression is not just about changes in emotions. It's about all kinds of changes at the bodily level, at the psychological level, and certainly it impacts our spiritual life as well. And so we see it we see it at the what you might call the spiritual or existential level manifesting there as well. So it's a complex illness, and it has to be viewed from all of these complementary perspectives in order to really get a handle on understanding depression and overcoming depression. That's what I try to do in the book is to integrate these various perspectives and take a both and rather than an either or approach to understanding and overcoming depression. I think there's uh, some resistance like people wonder can somebody be depressed while they believe in an all-loving god and have that hope of faith can someone really have depression in that state by the way i think that's a stupid question but it's one i get a lot so sure. i'm sending it to you yeah, and it's a question that i that i address in the book because i get it a lot as well and, and the fact is uh, faith does not immunize us against mental illness so people with sincere uh faith are subject just like everyone else uh, through through uh, ge genetic predispositions, early environmental influences, and all the other typical risk factors for depression, uh, they are subject to depression as well. In fact, I point out in the book that many saints, many holy people suffered from episodes of depression, which certainly did not indicate a lack of faith or a problem that was primarily on the on the spiritual or moral level. So we need to get away from that notion that faith automatically immunizes us against depression. We do know from scientific research that practices associated with religious belief, 
prayer, participation in a religious community can be among the things that lower our risk of relapse if we're prone to depression or that help us to recover from an episode of depression. But at the same time, we should not interpret that to mean that depression suggests a lack of faith or depression suggests some sort of moral problem or weakness of character or weakness of will. Uh, That's a notion that simply does not square with what we know about depression. It's a notion that really needs to be put to rest because it unjustly and unfairly stigmatizes folks that Mm -hmm. are suffering from depression. So on top of the fact that they're suffering from this terrible illness, they're all, you know, they're also compounding that with a kind of self blame saying, Oh gee, if only I had more faith, only I read the Bible more or were to pray more fervently that I wouldn't, I wouldn't be struggling like this. I should be able to pull myself up by my bootstraps. Well, that's not, that's simply not the case. And so to disabuse readers of that notion was one of the themes that I tried to address in the book. And that it was a a theme you did do a very good job. As somebody who has read the book, I can tell all our listeners that you do a fantastic job of getting away from that notion. So pick it up if you all haven't read it yet. I strongly encourage you all. And uh, I did have a question. You mentioned that there had been saints who had symptoms of depression at certain times. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So we know, for example, and there's some, been some recent writings on this issue, uh, that Therese of Lisieux struggled with uh, depressive and anxiety episodes uh, that she, uh, at various points in her life, struggled with symptoms that you know psychiatrists would perhaps characterize as neuroses. And obviously her profound faith and even her sanctity did not immunize her from having to deal with uh, those vulnerabilities. I mention also in the book, a uh, little known uh, 19th century saint, St. Benedict Joseph Labray, yes. who struggled with uh, what may have been an even more serious mental illness than depression. Some biographers believe he may have had actually a, a psychotic illness at times. So this is someone who struggled with a profound and serious mental illness. He was actually homeless for most of his life, turned away from several Uh, turned out from several religious communities where he tried to pursue a religious vocation. They recognized that, you know, this, this state or this life is not compatible with, uh, with your mental condition. Yet at the same time, he lived charity. He lived love of God and love of neighbor to an extraordinary degree, not necessarily ever completely overcoming his psychological problems or, or vulnerabilities, having to struggle and live with those throughout most of his adult life. And yet here is someone who's been raised to the altars and held up as a saint, even though he was a homeless man wandering the streets of Rome. Thousands of people, citizens of Rome, attended his funeral. He was he was so beloved. So I think we can look back in our own Catholic history and see that the saints were people of flesh and blood just like us. Mm-hmm. And they dealt with all the human problems and vulnerabilities that we deal with, they were subject to all the same struggles, including mental illness. And and to sort of whitewash that uh, with kind of uh, overly pious biographies that are really not realistic, I think does Catholics a real disservice because we have to see that the saints are just like us, right? Uh, they, They struggled with the same kinds of things that we struggled with. And through the grace of God, they were still able to achieve heroic sanctity to develop the virtues of faith, hope, and charity, to develop the human virtues. Uh, and, and, and yet at the same time, that didn't erase the fact that they may have struggled with depression, anxiety, uh, or any number of other psychological or mental 
vulnerabilities. Final question about the book. If somebody is recognizing a lot of these signs, if they're hearing you and I talking, they're going, oh my gosh, that is me, or they recognize it as a loved one. What are some good resources for somebody who is a practicing Catholic but might have depression or anxiety to start seeking out help? Sure. So in the book, The Catholic Guide to Depression, I make it clear that the book itself is not a therapeutic cure-all. The book itself is supposed Mm -hmm. to educate readers on the nature of this illness and also encourage them and point them in the direction of resources where they can get help. So in the appendix to the book, I provide, you know, many resources. I provide suggestions in certain chapters about how to go about finding a good uh, psychiatrist or psychotherapist and what to look for when seeking treatment. Um, But I, I think the book should encourage folks, hopefully to overcome the unjust stigma that still unfortunately surrounds mental illness and be willing to seek help, professional help, uh, when, if and when they're struggling with something like depression. And if the book can encourage folks and nudge them in that direction, then I think it's, it's going to do people a great service. But the book itself is not going to be sufficient as right. a you know, self-help book in order to cure all of these problems. Many of them are going to require uh, medical attention or uh, the, the treatments that can be given by uh, psychotherapists, psychologists, and psychiatrists, and so forth. Uh, so we need to begin by educating ourselves, but also recognize that there's no shame in reaching out uh, for help from other folks, uh, including medical professionals, when that's indicated. And I understand you're working on a new book for Sophia Institute Press on addictions, if I recall. That's right. I'm uh, working on the Catholic Guide to Addictions, which uh, is not finished yet, but I hope to finish it before the end of the year. And hopefully we can get that book out to readers as well. It's going to take a similar approach to addictions as I took to depression with the depression book. And that's uh, integration, to look at the problem from multiple perspectives and to recognize what medicine and the psychological sciences, but also our Catholic spiritual and ascetical you know, tradition can contribute to understanding and overcoming addictive behaviors. Very good. Dr. Kiriati, it's been a pleasure having you here. We are out of time. I can't thank you enough for coming on here and sharing with our listeners some of your wisdom and some of your ideas about what's going on in the world and also for mental health. You've been a great resource for all of us, and his book will be on CatholicExchange.com so you can order it. I can't recommend it enough, so please do order it if you need to learn more about this or want to help someone, or if you yourself are in a state where you need some help. This is a good first step. Dr. Kiriati, thank you so much for coming and joining us today. It's been a pleasure. It's been our pleasure as well. And God love you all. Have a wonderful week.